welcome to New Planet, a podcast where we inform and enable a sustainable lifestyle. Hello there, Xander. What's up, Aiden? How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. Another day, another podcast. Yes, sir. Um, special one today. It's our first uh, interview episode. Yes, I'm excited. We're we're sitting here with Aaron Horn, who is well, I'm a. Not. Uh, well, okay. Well, you know, I'm trying to create that experience that we're all at this table together. But right, right, right. That's that's right. Don't remind me that you're so far away in San Francisco. <laughs> um, yeah, Aaron Horn. Um, welcome to the show. This is cool. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I guess we can just start off with having you talk a little bit about yourself. Um, I know I have like a bio and background about you, but um, yeah, why don't you just like kind of tell us your story and like how you got to where you are today, I guess. Sure. Um, So I am a PhD student at the University of Washington um, in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And the thing I'm really excited about is designing with living systems. So A lot of my research is to do with aquaponics, um, which is growing fish and plants in a closed loop where nutrients from fish waste are used um, toward plant growth. Um, There's a lot of exciting um, opportunities in that field to try to have more sustainable agriculture and to use water and energy more effectively. Um, So this is a topic that I've been excited about since I was a little kid, basically. I knew I wanted to design systems with plants. um, and. And I didn't quite know what that meant. So my educational journey was partly trying to find how do I do this? How do I incorporate living systems? And you know that includes even down to a microbial level in the built environment. How can we have buildings be more like living beings? We spend so much time within them, we interact with them. And there's so much, I think, potential to change how we look at the built environment. So in, in finding my way to this, um, I studied microbiology in my undergraduate um, career and also minored in architecture because I already had this sense, okay, somehow I'm bringing together life in the built environment, but if I'm going to incorporate biology, I felt like I wanted to understand that at a really small level so that I could always zoom back in um, and kind of know what I'm talking about. I mean, I hope I do. We'll see. Um, and then from there, I, I worked on my master's in environmental engineering. And so then bringing it up to the next scale, okay, how do we use things like microbes in the environment to filter water um, and starting to design? And then now I'm looking more at a building scale. Um, and so in, in part of my work right now, um, I'm in a project called City Food, which is this really cool collaboration between six universities um, in Europe, Brazil, and the U.S. Um, I'm the the one PhD student in the U.S. group, and so we have the leader of the lab, uh, Dr. Gundela Proch, and she's a um, professor in the Department of Architecture here. And we also have an awesome uh, research scientist who's on the team as well. So um, we get to collaborate with these other universities trying to figure out how do we integrate aquaponics in an urban context? And so that requires kind of a big range of expertise. So there's people who specialize really at like the microbial level. At UW, we look a lot at the built environments level, so cities, buildings, things like that. Um, so I'm excited to be here on a sustainability-focused podcast because I think there's lots of great things we could all talk about. Yeah, wow. That was 
awesome yeah what welcome a, we're excited what a background that's crazy <laughs> um yeah so there's a lot to unpack there um i think i did well, yeah i wanted to ask more about city food and because i read there's that little part of your bio that talks about it that has like the broad question of what is the potential for the urban integration of aquaponics so i guess even maybe we could just start even before that and just you could explain a little bit more about what aqu- aquaponics is um I know Xander probably knows more about it than I do, but I read a little bit, just like I scanned the Wikipedia article about aquaponics. Um, I know about hydroponics from Xander because he's doing his own little thing, Um, but aquaponics seems like another step up um, that I'm really interested to learn about. I'm sure like the people listening are very interested to learn about that. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So um, hydroponics is definitely a big part of an aquaponics system. So growing, you know, plants, using nutrients and water. The big difference with aquaponics is that at least some part of those nutrients are coming from fish waste. Um, So it's basically pairing aquaculture on land um, with a hydroponics operation. And it's something that's been done really going back pretty far in history, but I'd say in the last 50, 60 years, it reemerged as a popular concept um, because it's really an exciting thing to be able to look at how nutrients cycle through a system in in a closed loop and to have some ability to engage with that at a smaller scale. Um, Because of course, I mean, there's these big biogeochemical cycles happening all around us um, and and agriculture is a big part of that, but this really kind of brings it down to a level that humans can more or less control. And so we can get really efficient food growth out of that. So it's it's really similar to hydroponics. It's just you're also, if you want to, growing fish. Um, Sometimes that's just for like raising koi, which are then sold for koi ponds, or it's for actual fish for food. Right. Yeah, I I think I read that like tilapia are one of the more common fish that people use for it. Yeah, so. one of the most famous uh, aquaponics pairings is tilapia and lettuce. <laughs> That's oh. like the traditional. <laughs> um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the most successful model now, but it's really popular. That's cool. Yeah, and you mentioned that like the aquaponics has been used for a long time um, because when I was reading over the article about aquaponics, it says that like Aztec civilizations used it um, like or like versions of it and then like in earlier Chinese civilizations as well they would do like paddy rice paddy fields in combination with fish and now I guess we're just kind of narrowing it down into a more of a science so that's super cool to learn about so now yeah why don't you tell us more about city food I'm interested to learn more about what that project does and kind of like what the what do you do specifically there Sure. Um, So City Food more broadly, as I was mentioning earlier, is a research collaboration. Um, So it's a project that um, it's kind of cool because the way it's funded, all the universities involved are funded by their own national organizations, but they're all working together to answer the same question. And so there's really this um, goal for everyone that we want to find all the ways that we can interact um, around answering a big question. So you know, looking at a specific technology like aquaponics, which is one of, you know, many sustainably minded technologies. um, I think trying to figure out, okay, what's the potential of that? That means a lot of things, right? There's a technical potential, there's economic, there's social, how does this change um, systems? And one of the framing concepts with Project City Food is the food water energy nexus, which is looking at the ways that food, water, and energy systems are intertwined and the inputs and outputs of each um, are all very interconnected. And that's something that 
is often used at a policy level to look really broadly at how the systems interact, but it can also be brought down to a building scale. Um, and so in my work um, with uh, University of Washington, part of Project City Food, where we're looking at the built environment, um, I'm specifically looking at building systems and so trying to trace flows of resources um, within the building scale. And one of the concepts I find really inspiring is circular cities and circular economies and looking at what we might have conventionally considered as a waste product from one production type or from anything really, how can that actually be an input for a different system or for creating something else? Um, right. And trying to figure out what are all the ways we can optimize that and synergize that. And um, it's one of the things I'm really inspired by and a lot of my work is, is guided by right now. That's awesome. Um, and it says it's in Europe, Brazil, and the U.S. Have you like gone to like have you worked have you gone to brazil or to europe and like worked with the other people or the universities there in like the other areas a little bit and i'm, I'm hoping to maybe get to travel um to work on this more in the future but i had the chance to go to a conference in berlin which was the aquaculture europe conference um, and all these partner universities were also at this event which i was really grateful to be there as you know just starting out as a phd student getting to really meet in person the people that we're working with was a great opportunity to really um, talk more about these subjects because that's one of the challenges with the international collaboration is we're all in different time schedules like you can't always talk face to face and building their rapport and, and talking about ideas of you know even those thoughts where you're like oh, I think this might be an interesting question to pursue it's a lot easier to have those discussions in person um, so going to Berlin for the aquaculture conference um, this October was a great opportunity to do that and even to tour some greenhouses and see some aquaponics operations and action um, was great. Um, at the University of Washington right now, we don't have a, a running aquaponics setup. That's one of my dream things. Hopefully I can like help make happen and get other students involved. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the circular, yeah, circular economies and circular cities. I know that's something that Xander is super interested in, and I mm -hmm. also am. So I think there's a lot to talk about there. The building integrated aquaponics. So that's like aquaponics on like rooftops and having, is that just, uh, I don't know, just to do with like fish and plants still? Or do you kind of like recycle other waste from the building and then also integrate that into the hydroponics or aquaponics system? Like how does that work? Um, so it's, it is really starting to take in some of these other resources. Um, so it's looking at, okay, aquaponics is a very circular type system. How can we build on that? And um, so it can often be a rooftop greenhouse, but it could take other forms. It's really not something that's been done very much yet. There's there's some rooftop greenhouses that are integrated. Um, there's a farm called Big in Brussels, which I think it stands for Building Integrated Greenhouse something. Um, <laughs> and um, one of the things they do, for example, is they use waste heat from uh, a kind of refrigerated space in the building below to heat the greenhouse. Um, and there's more synergies beyond that that I think have a lot of potential. So some ways that aquaponics might integrate with the building system, certainly um, using waste heat and kind of balancing out unwanted um, like excess heat or cooling from the building that you can then put into a greenhouse where you want it to be hotter or vice versa. 
Um, Carbon dioxide emissions, I think, are a really interesting one. Um, It's one of the questions I really have is, can we take basically carbon dioxide emissions from buildings? So if you have people working in an office all day, for example, and you have an elevated carbon dioxide level, can we really make use of the fact that that's something plants need? And in greenhouse growth, a lot of times carbon dioxide fertilization is necessary. so if we can then pair this waste source and then make it an input to a greenhouse, I think that would be really interesting. So those are some examples. Rainwater collection, you know, integrating water treatment systems, um, structural, um, all kinds of like, basically my, my goal is to try to break down every, every piece and see where we could tie it together. Right. Um, but in particular, I think there's a lot of benefits with the thermal um, mass. Of having a greenhouse on a yeah, I'm sorry, interested a in that. On a rooftop. <laughs> I'm interested in that that uh, carbon dioxide idea. Like, is that literally the carbon dioxide that we produce as humans, like exhaling? Yeah, it can be. <laughs> and so um, it would kind of just like filter into a greenhouse and use that mm-hmm. as just like food, basically for the for the plants. I, it could supplement plant growth. I think that would depend a lot on airflow, um, and it's something that has been done a little bit. Um, there's a really cool um, integrated agriculture system. It, um, I think it's called ICTA, it's in Spain. And they have greenhouses built into their building and so they're trying to um, measure this effect. Um, but that's one of the only examples I know of and it hasn't been studied extensively. I think there's a lot of technical questions that would go into that, right? What is the actual input needed for plants compared to the output you could have from a building? Um, are there other air quality concerns with that? But um, I think that it's that these are the types of questions we have to, to ask and, and start yeah. to break down and, and not overlook as being too complicated. I think that there's the technical know-how around to solve these questions. We just have to really start like digging into it more. <laughs> yeah. I think this idea of you know circular ecosystems and really using the... Uh, air and the heating from other buildings is is essential but also you have to think about all the resources that go into creating these aquaponic systems and how they're very resource intensive so in the long haul like what are the benefits and how can we develop these systems in a way that are sustainable because it's so resource intensive and I was I was volunteering last Saturday and I was talking to like a dirt farmer about sustainability and how I'm like interested in hydroponics and aquaponics and he brought up a pretty good point about how these systems like it's it's automatically more sustainable to just put something in the dirt and like then you can incorporate animals and there's already these ecosystems that are around us that we can take advantage of and really developing these ecosystems in a controlled environment and figuring out how to do it in the most sustainable way is is going to be a really big challenge, but I think it's something that we have to solve because the production is more efficient and the transportation costs and just like the overall way that we can make it more sustainable in the long run is something to keep in mind, but definitely the resources at the start are something that we need to be aware of and consider. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. Um, There's not, I don't think there necessarily is a clear answer. Is it more sustainable once you take into account the materials that go into building a greenhouse and the costs? Um, and I think that that's another important direction that you know research and practitioners should collaborate on is you know doing more life cycle cost analysis, seeing where do materials come from, looking at that sustainably, how far 
do you have to like are you importing your greenhouse from across the world and what's the carbon footprint of that and how do you balance those questions um and i think that's really important and i'm definitely fascinated by i think coming from a research world of frameworks of how you analyze the sustainability of a building or of a project how do you break it down and, and look at across you know from energy usage materials to effects on aquatic um, ecosystems really breaking that down and, and there are ways of doing that one of the advantages i think of aquaponics is that you don't have a nutrient runoff contribution so it, it's more favorable to natural fresh water and, and ocean environments because you're not putting in all this excess fertilizer that then causes eutrophication um, yeah that's you know also an example of where maybe traditional agriculture can can be innovated too and, and some of these things optimized more across the board and I think another thing to really consider is the economics behind creating an aquaponic system and I remember that that paper that you sent me like the cost per square meter of building like a rooftop aquaponic farm is three to five hundred dollars which is really expensive and like you can't sell a piece of basil for a hundred dollars so <laughs> like what's the like the economics is a, a big variable especially for like entrepreneurs and people who want to like make this more feasible for the general population so we definitely need to do some more research to figure out like how we can make things like solar energy more efficient and more affordable and like the entire system as a whole to really reduce costs, but without um, using resources like petroleum to make cheap pipes or other things that go into it. So there are so many, it's, it's very multifaceted and I think that's something to definitely be aware of. Yeah, I, I very much agree to that point and um, I think it's, again, something that would be a neat, question for researchers and people actually starting you know hydroponic and aquaponic farms to work together around um, because I think from a research standpoint it's really hard to get economic data like we can look up lots of information and talk to farms but that's one of the main pieces that you know people are naturally not going to want to share as much but it's interesting looking at you know and I say aquaponic farm and I think that's an interesting distinction and I think there's even some disagreement around is this, is this a farm? Is this like a technological operation? How does the person operating it see themselves? Do they see themselves as a farmer? Do they see themselves as like a tech startup? And how is that reflected in funding? I think um, when it is coming from this tech startup mindset, some of those funding mechanisms maybe aren't as favorable to where your output is, is produce and your return on that is, I think, harder to get back as quickly as if you were creating an app, for example, um, because you have different set of limitations. Um, and I think that's one of the obstacles in, in starting um, aquaponics or hydroponics, um, especially in urban environments, because you're looking at probably higher land costs. Um, but then there's this question of, do you have a market premium? How do you um, market what you have grown to a niche audience? And that's I think a lot of how people make their returns in addition to things like offering tours, offering their spaces of venue, all these other layers. Um, education. Education. Education's a big one. And I think some things like education and environmental impact maybe can't be directly represented in cost or your return on investment, but they're still having a favorable impact. Um, 
one of my questions, and I'd be really interested in, in your takes on this, um, is when, when or one of the discussions around aquaponics or urban agriculture in general is bringing food production into the city and, say, kind of looking at maybe a food desert type concept or a food access question and expanding access to fresh food. But then if the market price is really high for this fresh food, is that really addressing the topic? And I'm wondering, you know, how do we find the balance there? Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, especially when you think about food deserts, those are primarily areas in the the Midwest or like outside of urban areas that already have limited resources. So, you know, trying to sell some carrots for $20 (laughs) is like, is not viable. So like, I I think that that could be a, a situation where the government could help with subsidizing that for these specific areas because being in the urban environment and growing in an urban environment allows you to charge a premium because people in urban environments are already making more money and it's it's more accessible to them in that situation but then when you aren't necessarily in an urban core where people are where they have high wages like that that's a problem and i do think that maybe the government can step in but i don't i don't know what do you think aiden yeah i I don't know either i mean I was going to ask, because you mentioned like hydroponics specifically early, a little bit earlier, Like, are we going to see a shift away from just like traditional agriculture into these vertical farming setups? And will that eventually, will that price eventually just, it'll become so more prevalent that it'll just become the normal, like in terms of price even? Will hydroponics just eventually be the new norm? Um, I guess from my viewpoint... Hmm. I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but I expect that hydroponic and aquaponic production will increase, um, and maybe particularly for a certain produce that's easier to grow that way. I think there's definitely um, certain things that are a lot easier to grow in soil, and so I expect that those more traditional growing methods would stay for something, especially like a root vegetable, for example, but things, lettuce, basil, herbs, tomatoes that are really known to be able to be successfully grown in a hydroponic way. Um, I think it's very possible that that will continue to be um, a direction that we shift to in our agricultural systems, partly because of the you know, improve sustainability, but also a resilience factor. I think something that we've already started to see is that with climate change, certain crops that we rely on um, every year are occasionally not going to not going to be there. For example, California, I think last year got a lot of rain and a significant amount of the strawberry crops were basically destroyed because it had had an unusual weather pattern. And changing weather patterns all around, I don't know if we'll be able to have this traditional agriculture be something that's reliable. And that's where controlled environment agriculture, to the extent that we can do it in a sustainable manner, is a really good option. Um, And I think kind of gives a buffer. I, I, you know, realistically don't think it's ever going to completely replace (laughs) other methods, but I think it can be an important contributor and an important piece of the puzzle in a food system. And I also think if we're talking about like a sustainable aquaponic system, like the big costs are going to be things like 
materials, electricity, and land. And depending on where you have these farms in these food deserts, like those costs could be mitigated to a large percentage. Like if you're getting, if your electricity is cheap and your land is cheap, the crops are going to be less expensive. So, and and then the materials and just these these systems. Once we have potentially perfected them and know the economics behind one system and tr you can transport it to other areas and that there will already kind of be a way that the cost is reduced because you don't have to design the system from the ground up but then other things to consider are the environments in these other areas like if you're building in minnesota it's gonna be really cold and if you're growing in like texas it's gonna be a lot warmer so there's a lot of environmental factors that also change the cost so it's it's definitely a very complicated problem to solve it seems like there's a lot of things pushing us towards more like yeah controlled environment agriculture i mean mm -hmm. climate change is the big one if we're losing agricultural land and um, we're not able to grow as many crops traditionally then you're going to move it to an area where you can control the the temperature and, and whatnot and it's much easier and if you're doing if you're using like renewable energy to do that, like that's a very like sustainable system that you got going there. Um, your energy mm -hmm. is coming f uh, from renewable sources and then you're controlling the, the environment of the, the place that you're growing the crops. So that seems like, like a, like a no brainer almost, almost to just like transition to that kind of world almost, you know? Yeah. Um, like Xander was mentioning, I think climate itself and, you know, regional climates, uh, are a big decider and whether something is the most sustainable option. So like you said, like say somewhere like Minnesota, you have really cold winters. If you don't have a controlled environment, you're not going to be growing year round and you're going to likely be transporting something from a far distance. So then you start to have this trade-off where it really is a favorable direction to, to um, grow something indoors. Or one of the funny examples I know of, of how climate can, in ways that aren't even necessarily intuitive, um, create environments really optimal for greenhouses is that one of our research partners, um, who's at um, the University of Aheningen in the Netherlands, which is a really uh, high-tech agricultural university, um, they found that Namibia was one of the best places to have an aquaponics huh. greenhouse. So in, in a hot desert in Africa, because there was not a lot of locally produced food in the country, and there's a significant potential for solar power. Um, and they also had a water source that they can, I mean, they have to look at desalinating, but they can basically pull up water from an aquifer. And so by them, their model that they had, this is what they ended up finding. And that was something that at first I thought was really counterintuitive. I was like, okay, a greenhouse in the desert. But then you do think about solar energy. Yeah. It actually is kind of a powerful concept, and I think that that's where even, you know, having computer models that start to look at these questions that have a lot of factors can be helpful because sometimes things might not be intuitive, um, but we have the information we need to, to figure it out. And I think something else to keep in mind is the amount of water used by hydroponics and aquaponics compared to traditional agriculture. Like, there's a lot more water being used in traditional agriculture than in aquaponics and hydroponics. And so like, even though it seems like creating this big closed system that uses a lot of water doesn't in comparison use the same amount that you would if you were growing in a traditional way, especially in an right. environment that doesn't have good soil and 
the right climate. So, yeah, yeah. So let's see. Keeping yeah, keeping time in mind here. I, let's like maybe move on to this question that I wanted to ask. So, on we're trying to create this sort of culture in our podcast about like enabling people to take action in certain ways that are relevant to the top episode topic that we have. And so I was going to ask, like, if somebody wants to have their own aquaponic system, um, is that something, like, that people are able to do now? Like, if they want, like, a residential system, or is that something in the future that you can see happening? Like, is there potential for people to have these systems, like, installed in their house? Or, um, like, if they have the ingenuity to, like, build one? I know Xander can speak to building a a hydroponic system in his own house, but, um, like, what is the... Is there like a market there for just individuals to kind of have their own or is it more um, going to be aimed specifically at these like bigger like apartment buildings or office buildings or something? Yeah, absolutely. So while the project that I'm working on is looking at commercial aquaponics, actually hobbyist aquaponics and backyard systems are really where the movement comes from. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of really knowledgeable, really successful um, aquaponics growers who have these systems for themselves or for their neighborhood at a much smaller scale, but they're able to successfully grow a lot. And there's, you know, books and podcasts and articles about people doing this. And there's there's consultants. I mean, there's a pretty strong uh, consultancy in Seattle. It's called Anything Aquaponics. And um, I think he's actually also one of our collaborators at City Food. And his name is Seth Connell. And he basically like knows anything aquaponics and can help people set up these systems and there's a lot of demand for that because it's an exciting concept if you can be growing your own fish and plants and even you know the educational aspect it's kind of fun yeah so yeah i would definitely say it's something people can do and can do at a whole range of price points i mean there's definitely successful low-tech aquaponics systems i don't think that there has to be an implication that it's only a successful thing if it's really high tech maybe commercially because you want to be able to control factors but at smaller scales and for local systems it can definitely be done with you know pretty simple resources and it's still a really exciting um, efficient system nice it sounds like xander needs to get some tilapia in his system now <laughs> then you can have fish thinking and, about it now and basil <laughs> there you go soon to be kale <laughs> yeah there you go that's awesome i think we're there 30 minutes that was awesome thank you, I think, thank you. yeah i think that was a super cool first interview experience i hope we were good interviewers you were an amazing interviewee that was that was great <laughs> so thank Thanks you for so being here thanks for listening to our show with our guest aaron horn we hope you enjoyed it we certainly did uh, check us out on instagram at new planet and feel free to send us an email at newplanetpod at gmail.com as always i'm aiden hirsch and i'm xander kip thanks for listening we'll see you next time bye <laughs>